Romans 11, 1 through 12. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, do they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? There's two big questions in Romans 11. You can find that on the next page, page 2. The first is, has God rejected his people Israel? Verses 1 through 10, has God rejected his people Israel? Then verses 11 through 26, the question is, has Israel fallen beyond hope? It's just a natural progression of thinking. If he's rejected his people, are they fallen beyond hope? Those are the two questions that, Paul's, that Paul answers here in Romans 11. Here's the discussion question. Is it possible that God can reject his covenantal people? If so, give a biblical example of your answer. It's overwhelming when all of you raise your hands at once. I can't see who to call on. Can God reject his covenantal people? Yes, sir. You're asking me to define terms. Wow, that's incredible. I like it. Yeah. This is the crux of the issue, right? Mr. Mr. Centers? This is the issue with a lot of Reformed people. You equate covenant with election. It is not the same. Not the same. Hosea is a passage. Thank you, I didn't even think of that. Jeremiah is very clear. Bill a divorce. 
God divorced his covenantal people. In Hebrews 3, what happened in the wilderness? They hardened their heart, therefore they perished, though they were in covenant with God. See, it's a two-way street. A man in here spoke about how, how difficult it is sometimes understanding this, and he's absolutely right. When we talk about election, that doesn't negate your faith. That's what Rome wants to teach. Don't worry about your faith. Don't worry about believing in Christ. Let us do the sacraments for you. Let us do everything for you. No, you must believe or you perish. Every day you believe Jesus is the Christ. Every day you embrace him. Every day you love him. It's a two-way street. You have a responsibility of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now we do have the, the pactum salutis, the covenant of grace that God makes with his son within the Godhead that he's going to redeem himself a people. He doesn't break that because he makes it with himself. So you can say he doesn't break that covenant. Yeah, I get it. I was expecting someone to say that. I was ready for it. But covenant doesn't mean election. Romans 10, 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. They're disobedient, they're contrary. He's patient, he's patient, he's patient, he's patient and loving and kind. But eventually, he turns them over and says, you want it your way, have it. That's the last thing you want from God is to have it your way. Yes, you don't want God to be the Burger King. That Get that because it's my way. You ever seen the commercial? Sorry. Here's the discussion question. What does it matter or why does it matter to us on April 2nd, 2023, what God has promised to a group of agrarian cultic people over 2,000 years ago? Why does it matter that, that God made promises to Israel? Why does it matter to us whether God keeps his promises to Israel? True. His character. Why should we believe Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good for those who call, love the Lord and called according to his purpose? If he can't keep them to Israel 2,000 years ago, why would he keep it to us 2,000 years from now? How can you read Romans 8 and it do anything to you? Yes. It does. Amen. You jumped ahead and went ahead and did, oh, let's just stop. Romans 11. That's what Romans 11 is about. Corey's absolutely right. He has kept his promises, and this is what Paul's trying to do. Those questions I am asking is the very thing that Paul is discussing. And you have to understand, Paul likes to anticipate objections throughout the book of Romans. He does it through many books, but especially in Romans, like Romans 6.1. He talks about how you're justified by faith. Your sin, can't, you can't out-sin God, so the natural logic is, well, yeah, I just sin all I want to, right? No. He says, shall we continue to sin so grace may abound? God forbids. Or what about B, unconditional election is unjust. Well, it's not fair, right? Well, he says, listen, what shall we say there? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God's not unjust. Even in C, 
This is the big pill sometimes to swallow. Unconditional election destroys human responsibility. You hear that often, don't you? And what is Paul? Paul knows what he's saying, what it sounds like. He does it all throughout the book of Romans. He knows when he says something, what the average man's going to think. And he says, listen, you'll say then, why does he still find fault? If he unconditionally elects, who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you to answer back to God? You can't. He anticipates things. And it would appear that the objections to teaching to the teaching of Paul in Romans 10 would intimate that there's no longer salvation for the Israelites. Why? The logic is in chapter 10, verse 11, everyone who believes will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. What? No distinction? What a, exactly. What about the promises made to the Jews? The objection is a salvation for all. Are any Jews saved in the first place? What about the promises made to Israel? What is a Jew in the first place? Which is a big question for you to ask. In 2023, it's a huge question. I'd encourage you to think about that, especially thinking about next week. What is a, what is a Jew? Are we talking about spiritually, ethnically? What makes an ethnic Jew? Those are, those are good questions. Three. What is the example that Paul uses to show that he has not rejected the Israelite people in Romans 11? What's the first lesson that he uses? Those are the second and third. Y'all both are covering it. Himself. Because I myself am a Jew. If God has done away with the Jews and he no longer makes promises to them, why am I still standing here as a believer today. You'll see throughout all of Paul's writing, he's never disowned his heritage. As a matter of fact, he said that if there was any Jew, he is the Jew of all Jews, as a matter of fact, he says in Philippians. As a matter of fact, he's very proud. He said, I wish I myself could be accursed if my brothers, my Jewish brothers and sisters could come to know the Lord. That's how much he loved his people. He was never ashamed of who he was and where he came from. He says, I myself am a believer. God's rejections, Roman numeral two. If God never rejects those whom he foreknew, that's the difference. Paul never, Paul says, God never rejects those whom he foreknew. Foreknow has to do with election. God foreknows them. Not that he knows the choice they will make, because if God does look down the tunnel of time, let's just concede that. What choice would you make? I know the choice I made. made it for many years. I didn't want anything to do with God. And it seems to say this, well, I probably got it from John Piper. He got it from Owen, who got it from someone. But grace seems resistible. And to that moment, you can't resist it anymore. As a matter of fact, challenge someone who doesn't agree with it. Resist it right now. I'm not doing that. Of course you're not. I know. Because you love them. Because your heart's been changed. But those whom he foreknew, he never rejects. Then ultimately, who is it that he rejects? This is kind of an easy question. Those who he did not foreknow. So Paul, even throughout Romans 11, is making the distinction between those whom he foreloved and those who he did not forelove. Now, 
I don't know. I don't have a list. I can't tell you. For those of you who think this is an easy teaching and we should just get on the train, listen, it's not easy. There's nothing easy about that. We call it the big pill sometimes because you ever swallow this big pill. You're choking on it like this is big. But God continues to show why. Yes. My answer to that is always, God knows and you don't. Because there's always a mixed multitude, right? And this church today, we would be foolish to think every person who walked in these doors are believers and going to heaven. That's a foolish thought. Absolutely foolish. It would be foolish to think that everyone that takes the Lord's Supper this, this afternoon is going to heaven. It's not true. There's always a mixed multitude. There's always people who are converted and those who are not. You just can't see. That's the reason the front door of our church is open, but the back door is also open, right? <laughs> well, you know, there's, it's just the reality of life. There's always mixed multitude. God does things, but we can't see all those. I don't know if that could directly answer your question or where you're going. Jeremiah's third one's coming. Yes. <laughs> which we will get to, especially next week. Whoever's teaching next week has even harder, but I'm trying to set them up with a very, very easy pitch here. But you need to understand, God hasn't rejected his people. And here, here's another, those whom he foreknew, he'll never reject, but, but some of those people that he foreknew is a part of the elect. Think about Elijah, and, and this, is, this goes on with the objections. Paul's thinking about the objections. He looks, and it looks like the entire Jewish community... Ethnic Jews do not love God. They do not love Jesus. They've rejected him. That's why he uses Elijah. The story of Elijah is after Mount Carmel, he has this great victory. But then all of a sudden, Jezebel comes and Ahab, and they're going to kill him. We're done with him. We're going to kill him. And Elijah runs, and he's afraid. You can see this on page four. He's afraid for his life. It seems the entire northern kingdom of Israel is anti-Yahweh. Elijah seems alone, and none of his fellows and brothers are believers. He says that specifically in verse 14. I alone am left. There's no one else. 
no one else, I'm all alone. It seems that all of the northern kingdom has abandoned the faith. E, did God abandon his promises to save Israelites in the days of Elijah? Was Elijah the last one there? No. He says, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whom knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God says, I will always have children within the covenant. I will always have a true child within the covenant. I will always have children of promise within the covenant. I will always have my true people. Though everyone else in covenant God with God was, was blaspheming, they were worshiping the Baals, they were worshiping the gods of Ahab. God had 7,000, though, who haven't been the knee. He will always have his spiritual remnant. And it's important to understand who's the one that reserved the 7,000 people. It was God. It's always been God that reserves his people. God is the one that reserves. God is the one who does it. I don't know if you've ever been to Home Depot. Carpet remnants. Uh, a lot of us don't use the term remnant anymore in the sense, uh, I know there's a video game named after that, but carpet remnants you can still buy at Home Depot. See, they, they lay these big, huge carpets in a room this size, and they've got all these extra pieces, like about this size, and, and, and they sell them for a cheaper price because they're a, a remnant of the whole. They're a little bit cheaper. You still buy them at Home Depot. And, of course, those are the, the small amounts left over from the whole. God is teaching this remnant theology. His covenantal people may be great, and it may look like they're all leaving, but God is going to keep his promises, and he always has a remnant. Even in the days of Elijah, he, he saved 7,000. Paul says it looks like all the Jews hate Jesus. He still has a remnant. To this day, he has his people, ethnically. There's still Jewish people who grew up in the Jewish faith who maybe have a ties to Arab nations who still love Jesus. You know why? Because he's going to save people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. He still has his remnant. This is Paul's argument. How is the remnant of the Israelites preserved? Well, by God. I gave him some quotes here. Um, Anders Nygren, who's this Swedish Lutheran scholar, he just says, he points out the existence of the remnant in any age, whether it's dealing with Paul's time or now, does not depend upon the character of the people wholly, but on God's purpose of election. He basically sees remnant and election as interchangeable concepts. Which, you could say, we got to nuance that. I get it. But you get the point. There is no remnant without God's foreknowledge and without God's election. Which brings us to the next logical conclusion. What is the logical conclusion when hearing that Israelites rejected Christ on their own free will, while at the same time, in his mercy, God saves a remnant according to grace. Let me help you to speed this up. 
Logically, you should say, well, that means works mean nothing. Yes. Exactly what it means. Works play no role in your salvation. Now, this is where it gets... It plays no role in your justification. Thank you. Now, this is what's interesting. I'm just going to throw this out there. This is the interesting thought of translating word from word. You ever hear people go, we got to have a word from word translation or it's not a real translation. You might hear somebody say that sometimes and you're like, okay, all right. The problem is when you do word from word, it doesn't always translate into English properly. Here's another example of the ESV. I think is not as strong as the translation. It's right, but you, you miss a lot of things. Romans eleven sixteen says, and if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And there are some who say, well, then it looks like it used to be by works. <laughs> no, it was never by works. You kind of miss some of the translation. If you look at the letter F, Romans 6, 6 in the NIV, and if it by grace, then it cannot be based upon works. He's saying it can't be based upon works. Why does he say that? Because there were some Jews trying to earn their salvation by works. There are many theologians who cringe when I say that. Not you. You never could get it by works. But there were some that were. Paul wrote many letters because people were trying to earn it. He's like, what are you, you can't earn your salvation. It's by grace and grace alone. You can't keep the law well enough. Yes. That is right. It's always been about faith. That was the problem with many of the Israelites. They were trying to keep the law in order to be saved. And what does that create? Pharisees are depressed people. And you see that often in the book of Acts. Right? He's dealing with the Pharisees who have to build fences around the law just in case you break the law. Therefore, you know, you don't want to violate the ninth commandment. So it's sinful to use Facebook. Huh? That's not what it says. Well, if you use Facebook, you'll be tempted to break the ninth commandment. Speak ill of your neighbor without gathering the facts. Therefore, no Facebook. That's how the Pharisee lived. They would, they would make laws upon laws in order to protect the law. And they would turn into a Pharisee thinking they're holier. And then you had other people who are antinomian saying, you know what? We can't even keep the law. Why even try? Because they never understood faith was the key. Look at page 6. What was Israel seeking to obtain? And by what means were they trying to obtain it? Okay, what were they seeking to obtain? Righteousness. 
They wanted a right standing with God. They wanted the inheritance. They wanted the blessings. You could put all those inside there. They were seeking out a right standing with God. They were seeking out an eternal inheritance. They were seeking out blessings from God. Many of them just wanted Rome to leave them alone. They wanted to make a name for themselves. I think in this context, the Jews were, were trying to seek a right stand with God based upon what? What means were they using? Their own works or their heritage or their ethnicity. A, it was the elect Jews that obtained it. Verse 11, what then? Has Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? Yes, the elect obtained it. They obtained it. Why? Because when God elected them, saved them, they had faith. God gives you faith and you exercise it. B, the rest of the Jews were hardened. It seems that Paul is always making a distinction between God's covenantal people and his true church. Theologians, by good and necessary consequence, call that the visible and invisible church. Visible church, because you can see with your own eyeballs, people sitting in the pew, you can read the, the membership documents. You can't see the invisible church. You don't know my heart. You can only see the fruits. See in 10 years where Travis Peacock's going to be in 10 years. Is he still going to be believing the truth or is he going to say, you know what? That was something I did when I was getting paid. You have to ask yourself that question also. C, how can their table become a snare, trap, and stumbling block for them? That's what David said. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. How could that be? Why does Paul use this psalm to prove his point? Table's a blessing. She's absolutely right, by the way. Table's a picture of a blessing. They put their trust in their blessings, and it became a snare, a trap, and a stumbling block. Could you imagine the blessings of having King David as your king? He ruled righteously. He did right. Now, he sinned. wasn't good for some. But for overall, he was the, the greatest king that Israel ever knew. A man after God's own heart. Not only was the chief sinner, but he was the chief repenter, praise the Lord. Right? Godly, godly man. God blessed that kingdom. And people started trusting in the blessings. Think about America. How weak we've become. We've trusted in blessings. We have been eating high on the hog. Right? What happens? People are like, oh, it's going to get real bad. Yeah, it will. 
It will. Do we have the stomach for it? Do you have the stomach when the government says, hey, you lose your tax status because you're preaching the gospel and you're not giving in to all the different movements and the... Are you going to say, well, this just isn't fair. It's not fair. But we deserve hell. Like, do we have the stomach for it? And, and, and I hope and pray we do. Because I hope and pray that our table that we have does not become a snare for us. I pray and hope it doesn't. But that's what happened. That's the reason Paul, under inspiration, the Spirit uses this. This is the, the, what the Jews were doing. They wanted all the blessings, but they did not want to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Which is the next big question. Did Israel stumble to the point where there is no longer any hope? Did they stumble to the point where there is no longer any hope? <laughs> By no means. What was the purpose of their stumbling? Look at page 7. Romans 11.11 11 says this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? Is God just mean? Does God decree the stumbling of an entire people group? Not an entire, there's a remnant. But the majority of them, just so he can be mean? You can see the ramifications of what Paul's saying. And you can read commentaries that ask the same questions. Well, this is not exactly what he means. And this is not, you have to read it in a certain way. No, it says what it says. And Paul knows, you know what Paul says in verses 1 through 11. Because verse 11 tells us this is the logical conclusion of what people think. So he says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means, rather. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. I'm going to ask the discussion question. Did Israel stumbling, the rejection of the Messiah, rejection of Christ, have a purpose? What was it? And this is a very important question. Because if you answer it wrongly, you're probably hasty to the natural branches. Absolutely. Seraphonician woman comes to Jesus. He's having a meal. She says, can I eat? And he says, it is not right to give to the dogs, that which is meant for the children. It says that to a Gentile woman, it's not right to give to the dogs what is meant for the children. And what does she say? How dare you? How dare you? I'm triggered. You call me a dog. You know what she said? Even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. She understood she was willing to eat the crumbs. And you and I, we eat crumbs. And they're delicious. He has grafted us in. 
and we're eating crumbs for all the blessings and all the heartache and all the toils and all the troubles that Israel went through. It wasn't an easy road for them. I know some of us say, well, why can't they just get everything in order? <laughs> Look at us. We're a mess. The heartache their people went through. Yet, God still made promises to them, still loves them. And now we get the crumbs from the master's table. Now those promises are our promises. And you can say, yes, they have always been our promises. I agree. From the covenant of redemption, he said, one people. Thank you, Bob, Inc. and David. Though I still take what I take in Genesis 6. Yes, there's always been one people, one line that God has of his people. A remnant. No argument there. Flood happened for a reason, though. Here's something in Acts 14. Paul is going into the synagogues. The Jews refused to believe and stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds. They wanted to kill them and stone them. So he then leaves the synagogues and he goes to Lyconium, Lystra, and Derbe. This is what Paul is speaking about. Why is it a blessing? Because when the Jews rejected Paul, he then went to Lyconium, Lystra, and Derby. What a blessing it is that God's sovereign hand used that rejection, which brings us to a big theological question. Who else in Scripture had a stumbling with an eternal purpose behind it? Joseph. That's how the Israelites got to Egypt. They'd have starved to death without it. We never would have had a redeemer. That is correct. Yes. They're getting warmer. Who? Jonah. Yeah, he didn't really want to go to Nineveh too bad, did he? There's one big win. Adam. We're going back deep, old school. We lost so much in Adam. And this is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards says, what we lost in Adam can never compare to what we have gained in Christ. And you can say, like Paul, did they stumble in order that the entire race may fall? By no means. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the world. The jealous part doesn't fit. But they stumbled. Adam stumbled in order that what? We may have Christ. And some say, I wish Adam never would have done that. We'd have been perfect in holiness, upright, but we never would have had Christ. And what we have in Christ far surpasses anything that Adam could assert secured for us by not eating of the wrong tree. Than, 
I exactly know what you're saying because it's, it's, I stand in awe often. Let's do preliminary thoughts on Romans 11. Before I get to verse 12, you need to have some vocabulary. You need to compare Scripture with Scripture. This is where too many people, they call it proof texting. They'll take one verse and say, look at this one verse. Sometimes the Reformed people are really bad at it. Look at this one verse. It's like, wait, wait a minute now. <laughs> what about these thousands of other verses, right? You compare Scripture to Scripture. Oftentimes, some things are more clear than other things. So before we get into verse 12, you need to have vocabulary. Matthew 3, 7. There were Pharisees and Sadducees coming to see the baptism. He said, you brood of vipers. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And they said, we have Abraham as our father. And he says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Doesn't need you. The onus is on God. B, Romans 9, 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you're ethnically from Israel doesn't make you a real Israelite. Paul is debating who can sing Father Abraham. That's where Corey was going. Who can sing that, right? If you haven't sung that song, children... Parents, you need to teach your children that song. It's one of the greatest reform songs in the history of the world. And I sing it in my Baptist church that was dispensational. That's what's great. <laughs> Romans 10, 11. Let's go to verse 12. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. He's trying to set a pattern for us. Galatians 3, 7. Know then, it is not those, know then that it is those of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not about your bloodline. It's about those who are in faith. You want to be a child of Abraham? Believe in the promised son, Christ. That's the reason it's for the whole world. The blessing of the whole world is Jesus, his promised son. Galatians 3.27, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You have to have that vocabulary in your mind that Paul is constantly nailing and Jesus is speaking about. The true children of the promise are not those who are ethnically tied to the promises. It's those who are what? Spiritually tied to the promise. Those who believe. Then verse 3. Sorry, letter 3 as we close. Now if their trespasses means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will... Their full inclusion mean. Who is the there in this statement? Is it, is it the true Jews or is it ethnic Jews? Is it?
of everyone that's a Jew? <laughs> Next week, you need to show up because one of the most debated one of them is going to be covered next week. Week after next. Sorry, he's got two weeks to study, which is good. Next week is Easter. We don't have Sunday school, so don't show up next week for, for Sunday school. But anyway, just remember, God saves a remnant. I would read over Romans 11 every day for the next two weeks just to get in your mind all the different ways that it should go, and it's going to be fun. Father, thank you for loving us. Please be with us as we worship you. This morning, please be with Pastor David. Give him unction. We pray, O oh God, that we would hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.